Thank you for joining Andrea Schwartz and the Kingdom Driven Family Podcast. Holding up the family and self-government as a true and lasting means of transforming society. Please visit thekingdomdrivenfamily.com and reconstructionistradio.com. edition of the Kingdom Driven Family podcast. My guests tonight are Delia and Aaron Davies, a husband and wife who also are the parents of seven children. And it is their seventh child, a daughter, who's the main reason I asked them to share their story. Now, from my perspective, their story is a testimony not so much of courage but of obedience, obedience to God's law when it comes to life and how Christians should approach it. So thank you both for joining me. Thank you, Andrea. Good to be here. Thank you. Because the story starts at a point at which you are most familiar, I'm going to turn it over to you and you start where you think appropriate. Well, we decided really early on when we were starting our family that we love the idea of having kids, and we wanted to have kids. Okay, you're and going so really far back, yeah. We had, okay. <laughs> we had one about one every two years Yeah. Um, until we had six. And we had, throughout those years, we really had no issue having children. All the kids were born healthy and happy, and we really had nothing abnormal at all until this Last past year. year. Last year, after six kids in a row, again, like every two, two and a half years, I mean, it was just our prayer, Lord, give us children in your timing. You are the Lord of life. You are the Lord over the womb. You give. And um, I just always prayed for mercy and just not too many, not back to back. And God was so gracious all the time and just how our kids were spaced out. I mean, it was really, it was really perfect looking back. So you're a homeschooling family, correct? Yes, we are. Mm -hmm. Okay. So in the midst of homeschooling six, and I realize they probably aren't all school age at this point, at least from what I could see on the video that we'll talk about later that you posted, were you surprised to find out you were pregnant again? Not really. I mean, I was kind of expecting to, you know, eventually be pregnant again, but we were reaching a point actually where we felt like we were winding down a little bit and you know our family was big and we already had the biggest family at church you know now it's it was like 10 years later from when we started and so those questions were kind of coming up like what do we do moving forward do we continue and I felt like we should keep going and so a year ago actually we did we got pregnant with our seventh but then that baby died in the womb at about three months along and then we had um, another one a few months later that also died in the womb a lot earlier at around seven weeks. By the time I got pregnant with Mila, that was our third time now trying for this number seven baby. Everything was looking good, actually. I mean, I still had a lot of apprehension after having two losses for the first time ever. Um, There's a lot of apprehension surrounding her pregnancy, but I had a good early ultrasound. I had good blood work, and we went in then for just the mid-pregnancy, 20-week anatomy scan. We were going to find out whether we are having a boy or a girl. That's when we learned that there was something wrong with Mila. So that was the beginning of this part of the story. Let me ask you a couple of questions about the two previous miscarriages. As it turned out, I didn't know about that. So the number of children God gave you is nine. Was there any reason given for that you could tell medically why you miscarried the seventh and eighth child? No. So the seventh one, it was kind of one of those things where, you know, everyone's like, actually miscarriage is, it happens more often than you realize. It's more common than you realize. And I had just, I had never had one. And I'd never had a child die in the womb. And it was so that was the way that the Lord really opened my heart to really recognize. Like I knew, I mean, I always knew in my head, like an unborn child is still a child, still life. 
but I really felt that like there was this baby that had been growing inside of me that I never met. And when that baby died, like a part of me was missing. Like I really loved that baby. I'd never felt that before. Like how could I love somebody so much? And I didn't even, I never met that person. I, I never saw a face, anything, but that was a real person. That was a part of our family. And I love that person so much. And I miss that person. Now, Aaron, I know that miscarriages affects a woman, but oftentimes it's difficult for the husband who hasn't had the baby growing inside of him. How did you react to the two miscarriages? Well, I remember the moment I was actually on my way to work and Delia had sent me a text and she, all she said was, I had an ultrasound, period. And I could just tell that something was wrong. I could feel my heart sink. And I know that like you said, women and men aren't going to directly relate in the feelings. First, it was kind of a shock that it happened to us. It always seemed like that was someone else's story. Mm-hmm. But then I just, you just started wondering, because I was thinking, you know, Lord, I, I've always wanted to obey you, and I know you want us to have a quiver full, and I never expected to have loss. I always, you know, it's kind of an innocent thinking of, well, we're doing what God asks, and we do expect to be blessed. And now we're kind of puzzled, knowing that everything happens for the good, but, but now it's kind of like, well, you know, what's going on? Is, some, is something medically wrong? Is, is there something else? All these thoughts come and go in your, in your mind of, of, is something wrong with my wife? You know, is she going to recover from this? You know, you, so these things start going through your mind. So I, I kind of get, kind of got thinking about that a bit. And then with the second miscarriage? So then I told myself, well, I already had a place in my heart ready for a seventh child and I'm not a quitter. And so I said, well, let's try again. And so for the first time ever, like I prayed for a baby up until that point, it was always like, Oh Lord, please not too many. (laughs) It was more like Lord have mercy. But for the, and like when we got pregnant, it was like, all right, here we go again. It was kind of like, like we love our kids. We really, we, we do, but it, it really was more like, okay, here we go again. Brace yourself. Another one. Whereas this time I really prayed for a baby and like we kind of watched my cycles and we tried and then we got pregnant and it was like so exciting. Yeah. And we were just so thankful. And I thought, wow, Lord, thank you. Like I really, really, I prayed for this baby. and I wanted this baby and here we are. So when we lost that one, then when that one died, that it was a different kind of pain like it hurt. It was a it was a shorter time of grieving, but it just hit so much more deeply. It was a lot more painful, actually. How did the other children in your family react to these two miscarriages, or had they not even known you were pregnant? No, they knew. They knew, and um, our church knew with the first one. Like we, we were the kind of people who told people. Like as soon as we found out, we would just tell people. Because we figured, why not have people praying for us, yeah. praying for the baby? So uh, it was really wonderful that you know the church was able to walk with us in the grief. So the kids knew right away too. They knew, except for actually the second one, I didn't tell them for about two weeks. And then they actually on a Wednesday night they had found the pregnancy test. I just had left it lying around. I wasn't trying to hide it. And they found the pregnancy test on a Wednesday night and they were just so tickled with delight that, you know, after, you know, their sibling who was supposed to be the seventh after that one had died, now we were having another one and they were so excited. And then it was, it was literally the next morning that I began uh, the miscarriage process. And so they didn't even really have time. Like they had just started rejoicing and all of a sudden the next afternoon I'm telling them that the baby died. And yeah, I know a lot of women get a little gun shy after having miscarriage experiences that they don't want to announce it. They don't want to tell the rest of the family because they don't want the disappointment. But I really do like the perspective you both had. Why not have the communion of saints praying for you? Especially knowing that we now have a history, I feel like we need that prayer. But, but at the same time, it's hard. It is hard to announce. And then the more people you share with, 
then you have to tell them the bad news too. Right. And so like with the first miscarriage, my extended family hadn't heard the bad news. So I was at a family event about a week after the miscarriage had, had taken place. And I had so many people coming up to congratulate me. It was hard to say over and over and over again, the baby died, the baby died, the baby died. But I mean, it, it kind of helped too. It just helped to really solidify it as a reality. Like the more I said it, it was like, no, this really did happen. This, this is my life right now. This is what the Lord has ordained and this really did happen. And that this is what I have to you know, walk in and live in. Did your children ask you very detailed questions like where are the babies now and did you have to get into a discussion of God's decision that some babies live and some don't? You know, that's a great question and believe it or not, uh, we really haven't had to field much at all and I think that's because our kids have been in Scripture, you know, from day one and so they're not really surprised if you will, by kind of the normal things of life in this world. They understand life and death. And even our little five-year-old, he'll say, well, we had a baby and baby died. And, and they know that they're in heaven and they understand all that. And so it was, they almost took it too well. It almost, at some point, Delia was mentioning to me, I don't know if the kids are even sensitive enough. They completely understand what's going on, but they don't feel... They don't feel as deep as we do. And I think that's just from being children because they have kind of a childlike faith and they can just kind of talk about it plainly. Yeah, we didn't really have to have a long discussion at that point because I think we had read so much through Scripture with them already. Yeah, so after the first miscarriage, actually, our, um, let's see, she was six at the time. Our daughter kind of cheerfully said, Mommy, the first Davies in heaven. She <laughs> like was almost like excited, like, yes. yes, one of us is with Jesus already. There's been a lot of happiness around that note, actually. Yeah. It's really cute to see. And then our son, that Aaron was mentioning, the five-year-old, he does actually, he talks about, he, ta- he talks about Mila, actually, yeah. the most. He'll come and tell me, just out of nowhere sometimes, I wish Mila didn't die. And I say, I know, honey, me too. And then he'll just remind me, but I didn't die. (laughs) And that's what you got to love about children. I really do feel sorry for people who don't have children or don't spend time with children because it's really hard to be sad for very long because they tend to see the good along with the bad. And for whatever reason, their focus tends to be on the good. Yeah. Yeah, So it's been really refreshing. And, but like Aaron was saying, there were times when, I don't know. You know, you have in mind, maybe from what you see in movies, on TV, about like what grief looks like. And or I don't know, other stories you read. They're just different personalities and grief can look different to different people. But there were times where I kind of imagined as a family, you know, I would say something to the kids or I would bring up Mila and I just imagined the kids would cry. We could just hug and cry together. And that just never really happened. Yeah. Uh, instead, it was just like, yeah, she died. She's in heaven. There are three Davies in heaven. We're going to meet them. And like, okay, back to my toys. It, it, was, it was good sometimes. Yeah. And again, it, yes, you're right. It, it forced me to get up in the morning and move forward when I didn't feel like it a lot of times because I had to take care of them. So it was really good that they were there, you know, just without even trying to, they're encouraging me to keep going children are a blessing of the lord and it sounds to me that the children god gave you not only are blessed by you but they're a blessing to you yes definitely all right so tell me about mila and your pregnancy with her so i went in um this was in march we went in for the i was 18 and a half weeks we went in that's where they, you know, give you the due date. They check all the organs and just make sure everything looks good. And I had never had a bad ultrasound ever. And uh, we go in and the first thing the tech asked me, and she's seen me for a few of my pregnancies now, and this is at a birth center with a midwife because we were planning a home birth. And she asked me if I'm leaking amniotic fluid. I'm like, no. It had been dead silent 
while she was looking at the baby. And I'm waiting for, like, some kind of cute comment or something. And it's like, just quiet. Yeah, like, time. yeah, the usual, like, oh, there's baby, oh, you know, wiggling around or something. And, you know, I have a hard time figuring out what I'm looking at on that screen. Okay. And I just, this many kids, and I still can't figure it out. But, so I'm just waiting. But then, she, yeah, she starts asking me, and I'm like, no. And then again, just more silence. And so I finally asked, does the baby have a heartbeat? And yeah. so she says yes. But it, so we knew something was off. So I started just crying, tearing up a little bit. And then, um, I didn't know this, but ultrasound techs, by law, they're not allowed to give you any medical information. They can only tell you the due date and measurements, measurements and, and gender. So part of the silence was she wasn't allowed to say anything. Yeah. And I'm sure it was probably really uncomfortable for her to, to see that this baby had a, a major problem. We were told at that point that the baby's kidneys were echogenic, which means they were, they were just reflecting a lot of the ultrasound. They were looking really bright and they were looking enlarged and there was very little amniotic fluid. And at that point in the pregnancy, the baby's supposed to, you know, drink in the fluid. It goes through the whole system and then gets expelled. And that's what the amniotic fluid is. And it just, that cycle repeats. And so that's what we knew at that point. We knew there was some fluid around the heart, kidneys weren't looking good, and there wasn't a lot of fluid. They scheduled us for a higher level ultrasound with this nationally known doctor who claims he can, with a 95% chance, he can diagnose like Down syndrome with all these ultrasound markers. So he's just really well known. So in the, those nine days in between the ultrasounds, we prayed. We fasted. We had all our friends, family, church praying for us. Yeah. I was drinking water, like a ton of water, electrolyte water, just trying to hydrate a lot to see if that would help with the fluid. And I just kept, I kept thinking of the parable where somebody comes to Jesus and just recognizes, Lord, if you are willing you know, fix this, heal. Mm-hmm. And Jesus says, I am willing. My prayer over and over was, Lord, please be willing. Like, God, I know you can. You know, you hear Christians talk about these, like, amazing miracles. Like, oh, I was given this. My baby had this on the ultrasound, but then God healed everything. You know, like, you hear, you hear these stories from, you know, different spectrums of Christians. And so... Our prayer was just, Lord, I know you can. I know that you are Lord of everything. And not even a hair falls off my head unless you will it. Lord, would you please be willing to heal this child of ours? And so we went into that ultrasound the next week. And I got asked the exact same question. Are you leaking amniotic fluid? I'm like, no, I'm not. And we didn't get any good news at that one. But by that time, actually that week in between... I actually Googled a bunch of stuff, and I know some moms don't like to do that because you can really get like horrified and scared about all the bad things that could possibly be wrong with your baby. But I didn't want to go into this ultrasound and have the doctor name something, and then I would turn around and be like, I have no idea what that means or what that is, and I'm kind of clueless. Like I wanted to come in prepared. So... When he gave the diagnosis of polycystic kidney disease, it was something that I had come across in my research. And so then I was able to ask a few questions in return. So that made me feel better just having done that research and being in that position where I could talk to him at that point. And it wasn't like, oh, no, I've never heard of this. I've got to go home and figure out what does this mean? It was like, okay, I know what you're talking about. I've seen the diagram. I've actually read some case studies. What is this going to look like? Uh, we were actually, we were really calm the whole time. I feel like we were kind of almost like in business mode. It was like, we need to get, inf- we're getting information right now. Um, and then later we'll go privately and process it together. But in that moment, it was just like, okay, we need to find out as much information as we can right now. Um, I had asked him if he had seen it before. He said yes. And so I'd asked him, 
how it plays out. That's ultimately what I wanted to know. What can I expect moving forward? And he just straight up told us it's lethal. He yeah. thought baby's going to die. They, the baby's going to die. Like, so were they anticipating that it would have been a positive or a negative if you had been leaking amniotic fluid? If I had just been leaking the fluid, then that would have been a positive because then that would have meant that there was something wrong with me and I would just need to be put on bed rest and they could still help out the baby. Because there was nothing wrong with me, that meant that it was the baby. There was something wrong with the baby's kidneys where the baby's kidneys were full of cysts and they weren't working. So there was no urine being produced. There was no bladder visible. There was no stomach visible. And because the kidneys were enlarged, they were taking up space in that abdominal cavity. And that meant that the lungs weren't going to have any space to develop. So baby wouldn't even be able to breathe at birth. I see. I see. So it was... It's interesting because it was it wasn't just the kidneys. It's like the whole body has to work together. Yeah, and because the kidneys were enlarged and the fluid around the baby was no longer there, the baby was going to be pressing up against Delia's own organs. So there wasn't room for baby to grow and so they were expecting also that, you know, the head, the feet may have issues as far as growing straight or growing compared to the size of the abdomen. Was there any danger that Delia was going to have any physical problems herself because of the kidney issue for the baby? No, that was something that we had asked also. Just, again, I just wanted to know as much as I could, and nobody seemed to think that I would be in danger during the pregnancy. The only concern was that in delivery, because... There was no amniotic fluid. Um, even at this ultrasound, even, there really was like no measurable fluid left. And I was 20 weeks pregnant at this point. My midwife was concerned that I could possibly hemorrhage during, you know, after delivery, that maybe the placenta wouldn't detach all the way because of the lack of fluid, that there just could be something that could go wrong at delivery. But during pregnancy, there were no issues for me. Did anyone suggest to you in the doctor's office that you terminate the pregnancy or did they know you both well enough to know that wasn't going to be an option you'd exercise? So that was something also I came across in all the research. I came across a lot of forums where women, when they, were, when they found out that their baby had this uh, polycystic kidney disease, they were told to terminate and a lot of them followed that advice. And that angered me tremendously. So the doctor asked us something, this specialist, he asked us something. The word terminate was never used. He pretty much put the ball in our courts and asked us something along the lines of what we would want to do moving forward. I knew what he was asking. And so we just made it like very clear, like, don't you dare even mention the word terminate. Like, that's just not even an option. Like, don't even, don't you dare even suggest that. So we just made it very clear from the beginning, this, as long as there's a heartbeat, there's hope that something could change, that God could fix those kidneys and that baby could be alive and well. So we made it very clear that we were going to carry that child for as long as God had maintained life in that child. Yeah, and he had, he had used words like, if you, if you continue with the pregnancy. And I had kind of interpreted that suppose in the best way, meaning whether we would actually schedule delivery early, and which I've, I've read, we've read in a book that someone did that, just scheduled it early um, and induced. Um, but that also was settled in our minds that we were never going to schedule the day that our baby was basically going to die. We are going to be hands-off completely and just go where the Lord was leading us. Now I have a question that may or may not have come up, and... Sometimes medicine is driven by insurance and protocols. Just like you said, the ultrasound tech has rules that say she can't or he can't tell you what's going on. Was there ever an indication that because this baby was 
in a situation that they knew the baby wouldn't live that anybody ever brought up that your insurance might not cover this if you proceed? For our insurance, which is a Christian health sharing organization, it's not technically insurance, so that actually was never an issue. No, we never had any issues. I mean, I did have to transfer care from my midwife to an OB again and go have a hospital birth, which I hadn't done in how many years? Nine years. It's been nine years since I've had a hospital birth. And I had to call doctors and ask them if they would take me, and then I got turned down. They didn't want to take me because I'm a high risk now, and I finally found one who would. But... I mean, throughout, throughout all of this, I've just, I've seen God's kindness and mercy just over and over where, I mean, I've talked to other moms who have had babies with some sort of a fatal diagnosis and yeah, they were getting pressure to terminate like almost every appointment, you know, and, and it's put so nicely like, oh, we can induce you now, but it's like, well, no, if you induce me right now, the baby will die. We made it very clear from the beginning, like that's just not an option. So that just was never, ever brought up. So I'm thankful for that because it made a really difficult situation just that much more pleasant. Yeah. Being free and, uh, you know, not beholden to insurance company or something like that, being able to effectively shop around for care really made it so much easier going through this, um, not being told what to do so much as finding out what to do. And that's a real testimony, I think, to understanding God's law that there are some things that you don't have to consider. There are things that are already fixed. God says he determines when life begins and he determines when life ends. From my way of thinking, there are plenty of decisions that people have to go through all the time. But if you know what God's word says, there are some things that you say it's settled. It's, it's not up for debate. And one thing, actually, going back to God's law, one thing that Aaron shared with me one time that just really stuck with me, because I had talked to a friend, actually, that suddenly when you're going through something like this, suddenly you remember everybody in your life who's ever gone through this. And I'm like reaching out to everyone. And now I'm like, wow, I totally get it. So there was a friend I had who a number of years ago, she had a baby die soon after birth. And she mentioned something about you know being pro-life and and so I was talking to Aaron about that this idea of being pro-life and Aaron was like well it's not that we're pro-life we it's that we obey the sixth commandment you shall not murder doing anything else would be violating God's law and that commandment and so so I that just kept going through my mind over and over actually just you shall not murder it wasn't even yeah it, it wasn't a political decision about being pro-life or I don't it wasn't a personal decision at that point it was obedience to God right that's why at the outset I made the comment that a lot of people would say you're such a courageous couple what you did was so courageous I don't think I could do things like that yeah. which is what you hear oftentimes but it wasn't about courage it was about obedience yes yeah, yeah. So at what point in your pregnancy with Mila did you end up going to the hospital to deliver? At 31 weeks, I started having contractions. What's interesting is before that, so I was having my appointments like every month, ultrasound and appointments at the OB just to check for baby's growth. And we actually we had purchased a fetal Doppler that we could use at home, and every day we would check for baby's heartbeat. I thought I was going to have a stillborn. That, that's what we were preparing for. Yeah. But then I made it all the way to 30 weeks, and I thought, wow, I'm in the 30s. Like, I'm in my third trimester, and due date's approaching. Like, I just didn't think I'd still be pregnant at this point. But I was, I was still thinking, like, baby might die in the womb. So that's what we were preparing for. And we had an appointment scheduled on May 31st with another high-risk doctor, another perinatologist, and we wanted to get a second opinion because here I am, you know, 10, 11 weeks later, and I'm still pregnant. And that doctor, that first uh, specialist, I mean, he told me, like, with certainty, he said the condition is fatal. But here I am months later, and I'm still pregnant, and the baby's growing. So I thought, oh, no, what if he's wrong? And this whole time I'm preparing for death, and I should be preparing 
for life instead. And then through a Facebook group, you can find all sorts of things on Facebook now. There's this Facebook group for families who had a baby diagnosed with this PKD, polycystic kidney disease, and their baby survived. And their babies had to have the kidneys removed right after birth, and then they had to be put on dialysis for a couple years, and then they had to get a kidney transplant. And they survived. And so all of a sudden I'm faced with, there's a possibility that the baby could make it. And I've been preparing for death all this time, but if, but if we're going, if the baby's going to survive, then we've got to do this aggressive intervention, and it just, it's going to change the way birth looks. And so we just didn't know what we were supposed to do at that point. Like, I didn't want to make the wrong decision. Like, that's really, I, I just didn't want that responsibility of making a decision and it being wrong and leading to my baby's death when it could have, when I could have decided something else that maybe would have led to the baby's living. So we scheduled this ultrasound or this yeah, ultrasound, um, a second opinion from May 31st. And we were just so fixated on that date, just looking forward to that. The night before, I had a contraction, and it was kind of a big one. It made me stop what I was doing. And I had started also, when I went to the bathroom, I noticed I had some sort of a discharge coming out of me. I wasn't sure what it was. And I again, I Googled it, and it looked like, I don't know, maybe I have an infection or something. So I was just kind of watching it. And then I had another big contraction an hour later. And all of a sudden, I'm telling Aaron, I feel like we should pack our hospital bag. I, we need to pack right now. And I just can't, I can't concentrate. I'm not, I just, I'm, I feel, I feel weird. I feel strange. I feel panicked almost. So I called my dad. He came over and slept on our sofa. And then we just kept, uh, I called the hospital, the doctor on call. I tried to tell her my whole story. Like, by the way, I have really quick pregnancies and de or deliveries. Like our sixth baby, I woke up with one contraction at 1.30 in the morning, and then she was born at 2 o'clock in the morning. Like, wow. FYI, you know, just I have a history of really quick labors. And the doctor on call just didn't seem to be worried. Um, <laughs> I tried to tell her everything. Oh, like, yeah. I don't know if you told her that I delivered Lily because yeah, it came our, so quickly. Our sixth our one, <laughs> yes, a home birth. I just told Aaron, Aaron, get the baby. Baby's coming. Just get the baby. And I got the baby. <laughs> yeah. So I, I tried to just be as alarming as I could. But, you know, I obviously sounded very calm on the phone. So she was like, no, don't bother. So we went to sleep. But every hour, I mean, it was like literally every hour, like 1130, 1230. And I, was, I would have a contraction. And then I started feeling I literally felt like I was being pried open I was thinking I wonder if I'm getting I'm dilating like I feel like I'm being like I'm opening like it's this weird feeling I'm having it's the middle of the night I'm tired I'm confused I'm in and out of sleep I don't want to be in labor right now I really 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 did not want to be in labor I'm like I have to make it to that appointment we need to get our second opinion because I don't know if this baby has a chance to live and I don't want to be in labor right now. Finally though, at like four thirty in the morning, I said, honey, we just, we need to go because I was trying to be practical. I said, let's just go now and then we can be back home and then my dad can go to work. And then I also thought, you know what, if I go to the hospital right now, that's going to stop my labor because the hospital is like cold and sterile and just like so just uninviting and that hospital gown you have to be in, like, you know, it's going to stress me out and then labor will stop and that'll be good. So we went to the hospital, go through all that. I think it was like an hour before somebody finally came to check in on me. But then when they did do an exam, they checked. Um, I was indeed dilated about a three or four. They noticed that discharge that had been coming out and they said it was either they said, yeah, maybe it could have been an infection, but they really thought it was meconium, which is the baby's poop. Right. right. And I thought, how in the world? What? And so they thought that the bag of waters had broken and meconium was coming out. And that only happens when the baby's in distress. And so they pretty much were telling me, yes, 
yes, you are in labor. And you have to decide right now what your delivery is going to look like. Are you going to have a team from the NICU here? Are we going to do everything possible to save this baby's life? Or are we going to, knowing that you've been given a fatal diagnosis, are you just going to wait and see what happens and just do perinatal hospice, just love on the baby, hold the baby, and, you know, understanding that the baby will die? And I just did not feel prepared to make that decision. I prayed, Lord, I, I don't know. We were, we were supposed to get our second opinion, and I don't know what I'm supposed to do right now. And then my labor did stop. So now here I am. I'm in the hospital. I'm in labor. And I'm 31 weeks. The baby has no chance of surviving because the lung, I know baby's lungs are small. You know, and she's a preemie now too, which I just, I felt horrible. I felt horrible. I felt confused. And I just, I just didn't know what to do. I didn't feel comfortable saying, okay, yeah, we'll just do nothing. And then baby will just die. Because I thought if there's a chance that baby could make it, like we have to take that chance again, just we have to do everything possible to promote life. So we did end up having an ultrasound that day there happened to be a perinatologist in the hospital that day so we got wheeled up there and they did this full high in-depth ultrasound looking at the kidneys looking at the blood flow look at just looking at everything the doctor there told us that the baby was showing signs of heart failure at that point and was just describing some of those symptoms, fluid around the heart, fluid in the skin, fluid around the lungs. The kidneys were still looking polycystic. So I feel like that was our answer to prayer. We got to have that ultrasound. We got to have that second opinion. And that second opinion was just confirming that first opinion. So at that point, we did decide that uh, we would not do any sort of aggressive intervention because we knew that our baby would have a very short time on the earth, and we wanted that time on the earth to be spent just in my arms, being loved, not poked with tubes, not poked with needles, not handled by strangers, but just loved. But at this point, now I'm feeling bad because my labor had stopped. But as soon as I sat up from that ultrasound, actually, I had another contraction. Um, we, t- we got taken back to our hospital room. I had another contraction, and everything just started up again. And within a few hours, I delivered. Up until that point, actually, we didn't know if we were having a boy or girl. It was just, you know, baby this and baby that. So we found out it wasn't until right then when I delivered that we found out we had a little girl. Yeah. And they just they put her on me, and she was al- I didn't even know if she was going to be alive actually at that point. I was like in so much pain from the labor that I wasn't even thinking like we I wasn't being monitored at all anymore. So when I delivered, I didn't even know. I didn't know what to expect, but I yeah. had this little baby on me, this little girl and she was alive and she was wiggling on me and it was it was just amazing. Yeah. What was it like for you, Aaron? Cuz I'm sure you're in the room at this point. What's well, your emotional state while you're experiencing all this? The, the morning of the question of, of whether you're going to have the hospice care, whether you're going to have intervention, was just weighing so heavily on me. I, we had the experts come in and, and give their spiel on what it would, the intervention would involve and what they thought the likelihood of success was. When we had that second ultrasound and the doctor described the heart condition. We had been hearing from our her regular OB that she was watching the heart through the ultrasounds because there was fluid around the heart and that heart failure would be indicated by fluid spreading throughout the body. So when we had that diagnosis, I finally felt at peace that, again, the decision wasn't mine, thankfully. God was making it clear that Mila's time was going to be short. So then... When Delia went into labor, I was, I was excited. I was ready to just kind of facilitate and support. I, to be honest, I kind of got a little bit like, because we, we were planning it. We were going to take videos. We really wanted to capture that day. And so I'm, ca- I'm capturing a video. Here's Mila in, in Delia's arms. And I really want to hold the baby too. 
<laughs> you know. But baby's really fragile. She's on mommy, and I'm I'm okay conceding that. And I'm just watching with just wide-eyed awe and wonder. And they, you know, because the lungs aren't really functioning, they didn't expect baby to live more than a few minutes. But we left the cord attached, and so she lived for over an hour. Yeah, it was. And it was. It was amazing. Did she have any of the reflexes that a baby would have in terms of wanting to nurse, or was that just not there? No, no. The most she did, she moved her hand, she opened her eyes, she moved her mouth a little bit, she wiggled on me a little bit, but she sniffled at one point. Even in the womb, actually, on every ultrasound, I never saw her moving. The most she would do would open her mouth. Yeah. I feel like she just... I mean, she was such a little fighter. Like, we were so proud of her as our daughter. She had so many things against her, and she lived. She lived through all of that. She survived all of that, and she fought through all of that. There were there wasn't a lot of life, but there was life. It was so neat to see her because she looked like one of our kids, and our kids kind of looked very similar. They looked like, you know, a lot like Delia with a little bit of me thrown in. And so we just kind of say, you know, kind of lightly, this is standard Davy's kid. And you can see she has these kind of elements from these kids and these kind of elements from these kids. It's really, really sweet to see because you get that just refreshing feeling of, yes, this is one of our children. We've met you. This yeah. is so nice. And at that point, it was it was kind of, um, I don't know, that, that time with her was like I felt like, I need to make an entire lifetime of memories right now because I know that our time is just ticking and our time is short. So we just, we just try to get to know her, just feel her, her hair, feel her fingers, talk to her. But then there was just also this incredible relief that I felt, you know, whenever a woman gives birth, like number one feeling is relief. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That baby comes out. Um, So I just was, I was just kind of marveling at the fact that this was happening and the way it was happening at meeting her. I realized looking back, like I knew that she was dying, but I I kind of, I didn't really treat her like she was dying. Mm -hmm. Like I just, I treated her like one of our own and just like, this is our daughter. Here you are. Like we're meeting you and, and I love you and I'm so proud of you. And, it it was this weird feeling where if everything felt normal for a few moments, but I I knew in the back of my mind that we were going to have to say goodbye. But I was just trying to soak up all the time that we had with her. Well, I got to view the video that you had posted on YouTube. I think that was played at her memorial service. And I think the, the aspect of that video, it's not a very long video, it's like four or five minutes, but looking at the expression of your children when they came in to meet her. Now, yeah. I don't know if at that point she had already passed or not, but um, they have such smiles on their faces and such curiosity and such involvement that um, it's not that you and Aaron didn't have you know, I, I could relate to what you were going through, but just seeing your children, that's where I got really teary-eyed because they were experiencing time with their sister. They were. They were. And you know what? We actually, we don't know when she passed. And I'm glad we don't know. It's something only the Lord knows. We don't know the moment that she did. So I actually, I'm not sure when they were holding her, if her heart was still beating or not. Probably not. But I don't know for sure. I did get a chance to hold her first before, after Delia did, obviously for most of the, for that hour, and then I held her before the kids and the dad came, and we had checked the heartbeat just before that, so I knew I was holding Mila alive, even if for a brief moment. Yeah. And now the cord had stopped and had been removed, so I know at least that I held her. But they were—I mean—they were so excited to meet their baby sister. You know, at 31 weeks, like, she's, if she didn't have a kidney issue at 31 weeks, she would have totally been fine. She would have survived and been fine. I mean, she was fully formed. Like, I couldn't get over just looking at her hands and looking at her veins, her hands. 
Like there are all those veins that God put all over her body. They are ready to go. They are ready to transport blood all over her body and nourish her. Everything was ready to go. Her fingernails were all there. Beautiful, perfect fingernails, her toes. And that really comes through in the video. I, I, my, the thought I was thinking is it's true. We're fearfully and wonderfully made. Absolutely. God not only designs us well, but the body has the ability to heal because God gives it that ability. And for whatever reason, God chose to have your daughter live a short amount of time both in and outside the womb and I have to think that they there might be people who sit on the fence in terms of is it really a baby before it's born and Neela's presence says oh yes it Absolutely. is oh yeah what does the name mean so in I'm Romanian in Romanian the word Mila is mercy like when you read in the Bible, the mercy of God or God's mercies, that's it's the word Mila. And so that's what I, I just, over and over, the theme of mercy was throughout this pregnancy and even now postpartum. And then that verse from Lamentations about uh, God's mercies being new every morning, great is your faithfulness, O Lord. Like that was really what I was clinging to, like, Every single day, Lord, I need your mercy. Like, this is hard. This is so hard. I need your mercy every day. And I just, I've seen God's mercy every single day. So we named her Mercy. We named her Mila. And then her middle name is Nova. Yeah, and that was a name that I had chosen because I just had this image of her being kind of a little star. And she kind of exploded into our lives. And... And yet she she was kind of brief and, and kind of distant now. And I don't know, that image just kind of was in my mind as, as her being a little star. Now, I did have a question that I meant to ask before, but I didn't want to interrupt you. During the whole process of this 31 weeks, got the diagnosis at, what, about 20 weeks? And she lived inside of you for 31. How hard was it? to try to make life normal in your household in the midst of preparation and research and doctor visits? How did you manage that? Well, knowing, or I guess I wasn't fully convinced that she was going to die, but I knew that that was a very real possibility. So because of that, I tried during my pregnancy to just make her presence with us as real as possible. So when we first got that fetal Doppler and we're listening to baby's heartbeat, I included all the kids and that Aaron would always help me too. Uh, I would, we would check before he went to work, but we included the kids. I would always have, I would, not always, but I often would have one of the kids coming and helping me and we would listen together and talk about it and talk about the baby and the kids would kiss my belly and I was encouraged to, when we go places, take pictures and remember, oh yeah, that's where we went when I was pregnant with Mila. And so I do look back at some of the pictures where I'm pregnant and some of the places we visited, maybe in like some of our homeschooling nature outings. And we're like, oh yeah, remember we went to that place? Yeah, Mila was with us. She was in my womb and she probably heard us because her ears were developed at that point. And so we just really made her a part of our lives. And so that, that helped a lot. So that way the doctor's visits and the ultrasounds, it was like every two weeks I would have a visit, a doctor's visit or an ultrasound. And they typically weren't too long. It wasn't too much of an interruption. And we just really tried to make her a part of us uh, as much as we could. So there was no effort to make things normal, pretending this wasn't happening. Normal included, this is what's happening. Yes. Yeah. It was just like this. This is what normal is looks like right now. Normal is wake up in the morning, check baby's heartbeat, make sure baby's still with us. And then once I kind of once the doctor explained some of the stages of heart failure, I realized, okay, I don't have to check the heartbeat every single day. So then it became every few days. I wasn't getting a lot of fetal movement to 25 weeks. 28 weeks, the baby's supposed to be kicking you a lot. And I hardly had any kicks, like maybe a couple times a day. Like, but when I would feel something, then I would be like, okay, I don't need to check the heartbeat. I felt baby move. But that was just our normal. That's just, that was our life. 
I feel like this is a really important thing to walk through in life. And I didn't want them to grow up and be adults and maybe hear me talking about something related to Mila's pregnancy. And they're like, well, I don't remember. Like, right. you know, I, I, I wanted them to, I wanted everybody to really remember this. You know, throughout all that time, we, we don't know whether even babies were a girl. It's just the ultrasound is, there's no fluid. You can't see this from that. And, and so we don't know who baby is really, but we know we're loving and praying and talking about baby, baby's part of our life. Now that Mila was born, you look back and it's just an amazing thing about this whole thing. You look back and you just know that was Mila now the whole time. You look back in the memories. She was with us. She was in the womb, but she was very there with us. And we, now we know who she was. And it was, yeah, she wasn't just like, you know, like a fetus or something. I mean, like I look back at the, you know, the picture of that hike we went on and I can see my pregnant belly. I'm like, oh, Mila's in there. That's Mila. And I, I can imagine her face and how she was positioned. And I'm like, yeah, that was, Mila was in there. Like, I, I know what she looks like. I know who she is. And she was in there. We can no longer remember a day of that pregnancy without thinking that's Mila. Right. So this important event happens. It's significant. No doubt there is a combination of feelings because after having a baby, that's a living baby that you take home with you. There's exhaustion. There's hormonal changes. What was it like for you both individually post the event? We we were such a mess. I really was a mess. I mean, I'm dealing with grief. I'm dealing with you know birth. I'm dealing with taking care of myself post birth. I'm dealing with milk coming in. I'm dealing with all the hormones. It was just, it really was, it was so complicated and there was such a fog sometimes, but then there was so much that had to be done there that we were busy, which helped. I think that really helped that I couldn't just sit and just sulk and cry. There was a lot of crying that took place, just a lot of bawling and crumbling, a lot of it was, it was a really hard time. It's been the hardest thing ever in our lives, definitely. That night that we came back from the hospital without Mila, she had died. I, you know, it's it's one of those things that I may remember it clearly for the rest of my days. I, I remember we came back, and I, I was it was a shock still. Like, here we are, we're driving home after what just happened. And I've been kind of the soldier. I've been facilitating Delia. I've been trying not to break down so that she can break down. And yet I'm doing the things like picking our stuff up and driving the car and whatever I need to do. And we get home and we're getting ready for bed. And suddenly I have this overwhelming panic and I feel like I need to go back to the hospital. And I'm thinking I need to go back there and I need to I need to take care of my baby. I need to go and do all the surgery things that the doctor mentioned. And we need to, I just had this, I mean, it made no sense. I just had this overwhelming feeling that I'm dad and, and I left my daughter back there. And Delia had to kind of minister to me in that moment for the first time I'm getting ministered to being like, you know, it's, it's okay. It is over. You don't have to go back somewhere. That it was such a strong feeling and on occasion since then I will think about Mila and I'll get sad and I'll cry and stuff but sometimes I'll get angry that now she's in a grave and I can't touch her or hold her if I if I watch the videos of her again I'll have this feeling that I want to reach through the video you know and I want to tell her that it's okay well the takeaway I hear from this is that you all know something real happened I imagine it's going to be a lifetime of processing it, because since God's ways are not always apparent to us, we know what, but we don't always know why, that it's an opportunity to walk by faith rather than sight. And you know that he loved your baby more than you loved your baby, and he loves your baby more than you love your baby. And there's got to be a comfort in knowing that God keeps his promises and he's true to his word. The only way I can imagine that someone could come away from this and really recover is just knowing for certainty that this, this child, this is a covenant child, 
and that she is with Christ right now. I mean, I, that is the only thing that can really keep me afloat from just being, you know, just a complete emotional meltdown. That, that's, just, that's just the assurance I have. If I don't understand all that happened up to it, I know that she's with Christ now, and that's better than all the sin and ugliness in the world. She will miss out on all of that, and that's for her good, ultimately. No one can question what God decided. I can always fall back to that. And I mean, it still doesn't change the emotions, the heartache, the grief, the mourning, but it keeps us going knowing that that's true. He did yeah. it for her good and his glory. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Life goes on at the Davies household with this new permutation of being aware of things that you never experienced yourself before. So I imagine there is greater empathy when you hear of people who discover they're pregnant and knowing that there are possibilities of health and possibilities of illness. Um, do you think that you both have this sense that God wants you to use this experience more than just personally? My prayer has often been, Lord, teach me what you want to teach me in this. Work in me what you want to work in me. I don't want to be, you know, a year from now, two years from now, and I don't want to be the same old Delia that I was before. This is huge. This is mm -hmm. a big event. Like, I want to be changed in a good way by this. I want to be more compassionate, more, you know, empathetic and sympathetic. And But in terms of, like, what is what does God want us to do with this? I, I mean, I don't know. It's still pretty soon, though. We're not even talking two months since she yeah. was born and passed. Yeah, it is pretty soon, but our church has been so wonderful to us. They've been such a blessing to us. The, the love and the care, the attention, the help offered, and we don't even live very near to our church. Physically, it's about a 35-mile drive, and yet they treat us like we're our next door, and that has just been huge, and, and, and now we're able to relate to people in our church that have also had losses like we couldn't before. You kind of know when you talk to them, like, you both kind of get it, and you both kind of relate right away. Plus, now when someone's even just announced that they're pregnant, it's just a huge relief to hear that everything's okay with the pregnancy, and you're just right. all the more cheering for someone who's pregnant, you're all the more just wishing them the best and wanting to know that everything is okay and wanting to see that little child grow. And then even our own kids, five-year-old who says, mommy, I didn't die. That's right. You didn't. And I mean, it's such a profound statement. I'm like, no, you didn't die. Praise God. You're here. You're here with us. And yes, I still get mad at them. And I'm like, why am I, why do I get angry at them? Why can't I just look at them with a new set of eyes? Like they're here. They're here. What a blessing, like they're here and I can hug them and I can disciple them and love on them and be patient with them and instead of just getting frustrated or whatever. Well, it's all part of your sanctification and theirs. Mm -hmm. I'm sure there's ample reason at times to get angry at kids and there's also ample reason to exercise patience. So this is a whole new set of circumstances to help you be faithful to your callings. Yeah, realizing through this that you always know that our days are short and you say that. And when you have a child die, it really sets it in. And so I've been thinking, you know, I, I need to make sure I don't steal time away from my wife and kids getting too involved in work or whatever it is, that they, they are here and I need to be dad to them and make the most of their days. So that's been really like, okay, Aaron, the bar has been raised. You really need to grow out of this and really be the dad to the kids that you have. Well, thank you so much for sharing this story. I appreciate it, and I think that it will bless other people. I don't know if I shared with you, I've been blogging her pregnancy and postpartum and everything, and the video is on there too. Can so why don't you include that so people can access it? So the blog was a little life inside dot blogspot dot com. Yeah. And Delia's done a wonderful job of chronicling her thoughts and all throughout a pregnancy up to the birth and afterwards and then and then yeah, the video is linked. So the, there vi as the well. video is linked on there on um, her memorial service page. Like I said, I appreciate the fact that you shared a very personal part of you. 
I pray that God continues to bless and comfort you and that when you have the wave of emotions that you realize it's not necessarily a bad thing. It's just time to experience her again in the fullness of how God wants you to. Thank you. It's been such a treat to talk with you and to do this. Thank you so much for inviting us. You're welcome. Thank you for joining Andrea Schwartz and the Kingdom Driven Family Podcast. Holding up the family and self-government as a true and lasting means of transforming society. Please visit thekingdomdrivenfamily.com and reconstructionistradio.com.